0: So if you have your Bibles, please flip them open to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 12. So um, I got the call yesterday afternoon that I would be teaching today, and so I, you know, I prepared something, and it was very good that this is, this section has been on my heart, it's been on my mind for a couple weeks now, so I was really excited to be able to share it. But let's uh, let's dive on in. Let's read the passage and then I'll break down a couple things. So this is Romans five, verse verse 12. It says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned for until the law sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many have died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, As through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for your word, how incredible it is, how deep, how how magnificent. And I, I pray right now as we study through it, this really important passage, that it would speak to us, that it would come alive to us, that it would change us, shape us into the people that you desire for us to be. We love you, Lord, and in your name. Amen. So these next three sermons I'm going to be teaching, I'm going to go through Romans 5, 6, and 7. So this this sermon, obviously, we're going through Romans 5, and then next sermon, 6, and the final sermon, 7. And the reason why I chose these three chapters is because they actually build on one another. If you've ever read through the book of Romans, and even just reading that little section, if you've never read through the whole book, just reading that little section, you're probably like, this seems very dense. And it is. Romans is a very, very theologically, philosophically dense book. It is not, it's not easily understood, it's not easily digested, it's something you have to take a lot of time to process, because what Paul is really doing is he's laying out some of the most difficult, some of the most, um, I would say, uh, not only difficult, but complex theological points that we could ever understand as Christians. And he's laying them out in successive order, meaning he's building upon points. He's arguing through a uh, various various points, and he's doing it to an audience that he presumes doesn't know this stuff yet. So he does a very good job of explaining it. That's why Romans is a good book to go to if you want to understand basic Christian doctrine. So the first couple chapters of Romans, if you've never gone through it, the first couple chapters of Romans lays out the understanding, the theological understanding that all men are sinners. Right? All men are sinners. And then it also transitions to the idea of because we're all sinners, Jesus Christ came and died for us and we're united to God through faith in that sacrifice alone. There's nothing we can do to add to our salvation. There's nothing we can do to earn it. We only can receive it. And he explains that very well through the first couple chapters this section is a little bit different. From Romans 5 to 7, Paul's laying out a theological principle of not only all men are sinners, but all men are born sinners. And this is what we call the dual nature of man. That man is, and this is, I'm going to give you the principle right now and then we're going to break it down. Man is born in the image of God, therefore we are united to glory, But man is also born in iniquity, and therefore we are united to evil, malice, and fallenness. That's the dual nature of man. And in Romans 5, he's beginning this argument of why we have this dual nature and what Jesus has done about it. And he then goes through the next couple chapters to clarify exactly what this means. Now, this is is very unpopular. It's a very unpopular doctrine nowadays. We call it the doctrine of original sin very unpopular in our culture today. The reason why is because a couple hundred years ago, there was this guy named Jean-Jacques Rousseau, obviously French, and he had this idea that man is not born sinful. So he, he had a philosophy that went exactly counter to the Christian doctrine of original sin. And what he said is that man is not born sinful, we're actually born righteous, we're born justified, we're born holy, good, pure in every aspect but through your upbringing you are turned bad so in other words through government through various social structures through trauma mental disorders things like that that's what makes you bad but you're born good that's the idea you know if you hear every anyone say today like oh man children are born innocent they're pure they're beautiful things like that 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 and I hear some of you laughing because you're like, have you had kids? And the answer is no, they haven't had kids. That's why. And, and actually, Rousseau was a terrible father. I'm not going to get into exactly what he did, but he, yeah, he ruined his family because of this doctrine. But this is also why, if you've, if you've ever wanted to use parents, ever wondered, like, why in psychological circles, if someone goes to a psychologist today and they have issues, the number one thing that the psychologist is going to dig into is their parents. They're going to be like, well, what were your parents? And they call it family of origin studies. And I'm not going to discount it totally, but the idea there is if the child is born pure and you're a mess, what happened from when you were poor to now that you're a mess? That's the idea. There's something that had to have occurred in your early life, something that happened from your family that perfectly explains what's wrong with you today. So in our culture right now, you may have noticed there's a huge rise in young people believing that they have mental disorders, uh, a massive rise of self-diagnosis from young people. Uh, in fact, one of the big trends I just learned this last week. Big trend that's happening right now is over. There's over 10 million people in our society today who believe they have multiple personality disorder. Now, this is a very rare. Very rare psychological disorder, and a lot of people don 't even think it 's real; they think it 's mainly from movies like Split and things like that that this kind of mess with people 's heads but it it 's pretty shocking that ten million people would claim that they have this this disorder that if it exists, is incredibly incredibly faintingly. Rare, But beyond that, self-diagnosis of anxiety disorders, self-diagnosis of depression disorders, we're a very heavily medicated society. There's a lot of people on very intensive psychological medications right now. And some of them have been put on it from a very young age. We're talking like 5 to 10 being put on Ritalin and various drugs like that. Uh, there's also a huge rise in suicidality among young people, a huge rise of anxiety and depression and things like that. It's really, really odd for those looking in because we're at a period of history where we have more prosperity than ever. We're the most prosperous nation that's ever existed, ever. The, some of the poorest people in this country right now live better than some of the wealthy people in most other countries. I remember going to Afghanistan, and we, uh, we kind of broke in, not really broke in. I mean, he let us in, but we had guns. He didn't have a choice. But, you know, this guy, you know, like we were, we were going into the city. We were pushing the We didn't have a base yet, and we stayed with this guy's house. And he was like the richest guy in all of Afghanistan. Like this dude was super-duper wealthy. And we went into his house, and you know what made him really wealthy? He had a concrete house. And that in there, that's a big deal because everyone else has mud houses. This dude had concrete, so he was like the Bel Air of Afghanistan. He had a concrete house, no electricity, right? Because they don't have a power grid there. Uh, no insulation no doors really, you know, the windows are just, you know, cut out, you know, like if if you saw someone with glass in their house, you were like, whoa, like this dude's a high roller, you know, if they had any amount of glass, and usually it was just like a tiny little window that you could kind of look through, and obviously you can't open it, because it's just cemented in there, and like that's, that's the kind of culture, that's the richest guy, that's the richest guy, and if anyone had a house like that in America, we would be like, oh my gosh, you poor soul, you know they'd be on the welfare system we'd be trying to help them out we may even assume that they're squatting somewhere without those kind of amenities obviously no running water anything like that and that's the wealthiest person in that whole city that's the wealthiest guy so we see that we live in this incredibly prosperous nation and yet these feelings of angst and depression and anxiety are on the rise and the question becomes well, why is that well from the Christian perspective, we think that Jean-Jacques Rousseau was wrong. We think he's wrong. And because our culture does not have a spiritual explanation for their internal distress. So in other words, we're all born understanding there's something wrong with me. And there's something wrong with the world. We look at the world, we see everything that's going wrong, we see the evil and the malice within mankind, and then more horribly, we look inside and we see that same kind of evil and malice alive and well in us, and we have to explain it somehow, and because we don't have a spiritual explanation, we have to find a physical one. We have to find a physical one. This is why people are self-diagnosing with trauma, self-diagnosing with mental disorders, and they're still massively depressed. They don't have an answer for what's wrong with us. And it's because we've lost this doctrine of original sin. G.K. Chesterton, who's a really famous Christian author, philosopher, really, really dense author, kind of difficult to get through some of his stuff. He wrote a book called Orthodoxy. And in this book, he makes a really funny statement. He said, original sin is a doctrine that a lot of theologians debate about very heatedly. And he said, I find that ironic because it is the only Christian doctrine that can be proved verifiably, right? So in other words, it's the only doctrine that we have. If you want to know, like, people are like, where's proof of God? Where's proof of this? Where's proof of that? The easiest thing to prove from his perspective is that mankind's a mess. He was like, that's the easiest thing you could possibly prove. But because humanity doesn't accept it, we have to come up with really odd philosophies in order to understand The way that the world is working right now and it doesn't tend to bring us any amount of hope or peace so the the top one so i've mentioned some mental disorders trauma things like that but the top one is unjust social structures this is the big one in our society today now there's a woman named beatrice webb Uh, She was one of the architects of the modern-day British welfare system, so lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. She was a socialist. She was an activist. She was a British leader, and she kept this diary while she was going through her social work. And in the beginning, in in this one entry, she she writes this. This is in 1890, so she's still a young woman, and she says, I have staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. Now, why is she saying that? is because if I see evil around me, if I see people doing evil actions, but I believe that humanity is inherently good, then I have to believe the reason why those people are evil is because of poverty, is because of unjust social structures. They have been oppressed. They have been downtrodden by the system. And if we change the system, then the people will be brought up to virtue. If we change the system, people will become virtuous. They just need a chance. That's what people need. Now, she spends most of her life fighting for this, and after 35 years of fighting, so she's been fighting this thing tooth and nail for 35 years, this is what she says. So she goes back in her journal, and she writes in the margin next to that. She says this, I now realize how permanent the evil impulses and instincts within us are, and how little they seem to change. Greed for wealth and power and how mere social machinery will never change that we must ask better things from human nature, but will we get a response? No. No amount of science or knowledge has been of any avail, and unless we curb the bad impulse, how will we get better social institutions? So in other words, she looked at the culture and she said, what's wrong with culture? Society makes people evil. But then at the end of her life she realized, but who makes society? People. So she's like, it's not society that makes people evil, People make society evil. And until we could figure out how to touch the inner bad impulse of man, she still isn't unwilling to say that. You guys see this? She's still unwilling to say that mankind is inherently evil. So she calls it a bad impulse. But she starts to see, oh my gosh, I was wrong. She doesn't convert to Christianity, but she does convert to this very specific doctrine of Christianity. She fights for 35 years and recognizes, why am I not making any progress Possibly it's because I have not taken into account that mankind is not inherently good. Now, um, I'm going to point out a couple things in our culture today that that really illustrate this very strongly. In New York, they came up with this really interesting plan to create, I don't know exactly what you call them. I, I guess you would call them like socialized drug dens. I guess you could call them that. So the, the, these are places where people can legally go and use drugs. Uh, so you could, you could go into these houses and they provide you with clean needles and they provide you with all the paraphernalia, paraphernalia that you need to inject yourself with various drugs. And their idea is, once again, well, people are inherently kind of good and so there's these drugs out there that they're utilizing, but it's not the drugs' fault. You know, it's not that fault. It's 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 you know society. And if we just give these people a little bit of love and a little bit of understanding, they'll see the error of their ways and they'll change. Obviously, these things have been a massive failure. They have found a lot of corpses within these things, and people are not getting better; they're getting much much worse. Um, the, the, there's all obviously various other social structures that I could point out, including the welfare system. Uh, regardless of where you fall politically, the war on poverty began in the 1960s, the so-called war on poverty. And since then, I think America has spent about $3 trillion overall on the war on poverty. And if you look at the societies that are most impacted, meaning the cultures that are most impacted by the welfare system, do we see people rising out of it? And the answer is no. We don't see a lot of social change happening within those cultures. In fact, we see the opposite. So uh, the cultures that are most impacted by the welfare system, not only do we see people getting inherently stuck in the welfare system, they never get out, but the family structures and the social structures break down at an exponential rate. So, for instance, fatherlessness is at an all-time high in our country today and things like that. This is, again, the idea of, oh, it's not people's fault. It's society's fault. And if we just give them a little bit more love, a little bit more understanding, they'll naturally see the error of their ways and they'll change. And again, we're not seeing that at all. Uh, One more thing I'm going to point out before I move into the the Christian doctrine, and why it's so important. Uh, There is a brand new one that is, it's not really new. It's been around since the seventies, but it's gaining a lot of traction today. Uh, It's called critical race theory. Now, this is the idea that we believe in a form of original sin, but the original sin is racially segregated. So in other words, it's not that all men are born sinful. It's that certain races are born inherently sinful, and their sin has then propagated to other races around. So in other words, you have the majority is born inherently sinful, And that majority then propagates their sinful behavior on the minority, oppresses them, and through that oppression, the minority is turned evil as well. So various ways that our culture is trying to explain what's so very, very obvious, all because we're unwilling to say what the Bible says. We're unwilling to acknowledge the simple truth that the Bible lays out, that mankind is born sinful. Now, why is it that people are so opposed to this doctrine? Well, it's actually very simple. This doctrine takes away human autonomy to a very high degree. What it states is that you were born broken. You were born twisted within your nature. And people don't like to hear that. They like to hear that you're in control of your own life. You get to make all decisions for yourself. We don't want to hear that we're born with a nature and that nature is actually more responsible for your behavior than anything else. We want to feel like we're in power and we're in control. This doctrine removes all power from mankind. Because not only does it remove the power to determine your natural state, but it also removes your power to be able to save yourself. Because if you are born broken, you cannot be the solution. You can't be the solution. So everyone who thinks like, man, we could save the world, we can make the world a better place, you're why the world is broken. And if you're why the world is broken, any attempt that you're gonna to make to make the world a better place is going to ultimately make it worse. And that's what we see again within our culture and our society. The more altruistic people have become, the more they're going to ruin the society. The road to hell is certainly paved with good intentions. And again, when you look through the last century, It's not like the people who made the world a worse place in the last century, guys like Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, people like that. They weren't these malicious individuals who were like, I want to screw up the world. You know, I just hate mankind and I want to make everything worse. If you read their writings, they actually are altruistic, meaning that they are trying to help the world. They really believed that what they were doing was going to benefit all mankind, but it didn't. If you're part of the problem, you can't really be part of the solution. You can't really be part of the solution. We don't like that doctrine at all. Now, the way that Paul lays it out, and the reason why it's so important for us to grasp this, is in order to accept salvation through Christ, you must accept this doctrine. You have to. There's a reason why Christianity is the only belief system that states that you can't save yourself every other belief system or philosophy on this earth will tell you you're a little bit of a mess maybe, but through hard work, through meditation, through religious experience, through virtue training, things like that, you can save yourself. You can be the person that you want to be. Christianity is the only doctrine out there that says, no, you can't. No, you can't. You could try your best. You could try your hardest, but ultimately you will always remain fallen. You will always remain fallen, and the only hope for you does not exist within the confines of this world. It only exists in faith in Jesus Christ. Someone from outside this world had to come in to save us and redeem us. That is our only hope. So while it seems superficially very disturbing to us, it actually carries a great deal of hope. Now to lay this out, there was a writer named Dorothy Sayers, very smart woman, one of the, I think she was the first woman to ever graduate from Oxford, which is a pretty big feat, a Christian woman, and after World War II, she wanted to write to her intelligent friends, right, so she had a lot of educated, highfalutin friends, and they believed everything that I've been telling you for the last couple minutes that humanity is inherently good, and if we just change society, everything would be great, and we're on this incline. That's what they believed. After World War II, their hopes were just demolished because their idea was like, yeah, you know, Europe, white Europe, we're just getting better and better. And, you know, as we become more educated, as we become more civilized, like all these evils from the past are going to fade away, and we're going to come into a brand new utopia. I, I heard a, a phrase that, that illustrates this very well. It says, to a person who believes this way, the past is always an embarrassment, the present is always a crisis, and the future is always a utopia right? So the past is always an embarrassment. Oh, those old people, you know, like they they just didn't know what we know today and we're going to do better. The present's always a crisis. Oh man, everything is terrible right now because of those old people. So give us more power because the future the future is bright, man. In, the, in this, this, uh, this undisclosed time, TBD, you know, we're going to have this great utopia, and everything's going to be bright and shiny, and everything's going to be great, but right now it's terrible, so it'd give us more power. That's the idea. But after World War II, mankind was very much sobered, especially Western society, very much sobered, because what did you have? The most educated culture that's ever existed, Germany. Man, they were, they were the most educated, scientific people that existed on the face of the earth. That's why they were able to, with fewer numbers, do as much damage as they did. Right? If you look at the technology that the German military had at their disposal, it made our technology look like a joke. They developed the first jet engine. Their, their tanks could demolish like at least five or six of ours without even being damaged. Right? They were way beyond us technologically. But here's this idea, this incredibly civilized, this incredibly educated society did this level of evil, a level of evil that was, at that point, unheard of, right? No culture, no culture had executed that many people before, and it started to demolish this idea that was present within the intelligentsia, and because of it, it started to, like Beatrice Webb... Right? Everyone was becoming despondent. We have no hope. Right? That's what people come to. That's what that doctrine leads you to. Hopelessness. And again, that's why so many people today, so many young people, find themselves in so much despair. To give people an outlook on reality that says, Oh, yes, everything could get better. You could fix yourself. When they find in themselves an inherent twistedness, when they find in themselves an inherent wrongness, a badness, and they can't fix it, they don't know how to fix it, what it does is it leads to absolute despair, absolute despair. But this is what she says. Listen, this is very interesting. She said, the people who are most discouraged... And despondent by the barbarity and stupidity of human behavior are those who cling to an optimistic belief in the civilizing influence of progress through enlightenment. To them, the appalling outbursts of bestial ferocity within the totalitarian states and the obstinate selfishness and stupid greed of capitalist society are not merely shocking and alarming. For them, it is as though the bottom had dropped out of their very universe. Now, for the Christian, this isn't so he is as deeply shocked and grieved as anyone else but he is not astonished he has not he has been made accustomed to the idea that there is a deep interior dislocation within the very center of human personality the christian dogma of the double nature of man which asserts that man is disintegrated and necessarily imperfect within himself and all of his works yet closely related by a real unity of substance with an eternal perfection within and beyond him, makes the present parlous state of human society seem less hopeless and less irrational. And this is what she's saying. As Christians, we're not looking at the world and saying, oh, the world's a mess, you know, everyone is terrible. No, we look at the world and say, we're image of God, right? We're made in God's image. And that means that people are capable of wondrous things. Right There is a lot of beauty within humanity. Even people who don't know God perform incredible acts, incredible acts of heroism and val- valor and uh, integrity and virtue. Right? These things exist throughout the world, and they're incredibly beautiful when we see them. I remember when I was training in the Marines, one of the things we had to do is we had to study Marines who had come before us, and it was incredible to look through the various soldiers who had given their lives for this country, many of them not Christian, and when you look at this type of virtue, it's impossible to, con- to, to just be like, oh, well, humanity is terrible, and we're fallen, and we're not capable of anything good. You can't do that because there is a beauty within human nature that's undeniable. But there's also a malice within humanity that is also equally undeniable. The goodness that mankind can perform, the virtue that we can perform, far outstrips anything you could see in the animal kingdom, but... The malice and the cruelty that humanity can perform far outstrips anything we could see in nature as well. There is something deeply, as she puts it, dislocated within us. There's something wrong. There's something the matter with us. And that is this idea of being born under Adam. So let's go back to the passage and we'll we'll break it down a little bit to understand this doctrine. What Paul is saying in Romans 5 is he's saying that God created a structure. He created a structure. And in this structure, he made Adam, which is another name for man, he made Adam the head of mankind. So much like a ruler, right, much like a ruler, Adam became the ruler of us. So, for instance, did every German believe in the Nazi plan? No. No, they didn't. In fact, there was a lot of Germans who didn't like what Hitler was doing. One of my favorite authors, actually, is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor during the Nazi, uh, the Nazi government, and he w- opposed them strongly, and he actually tried to assassinate Hitler. Right? He actually had this plan to kill him, which is kind of cool, in my opinion, but he un- unfortunately failed and was executed, uh, him and basically his entire family. But we, we see there that there were a lot of Germans who didn't agree with what Hitler was doing. But America, we didn't declare war on Hitler, we declared war on Germany, right? That was the the way that war works. We declared war on Germany itself because the leadership represents the population, and we understand that in warfare. That's why you're not held accountable as a military member for collateral damage, right? Because you are at war with the country, and the collateral damage within the country is not your responsibility. In the same way, Adam becomes the ruler of all of his children, were all children of Adam. And he made a decision as to how the kingdom of this world is going to function, right? God gave him the keys. He's like, you are the ruler. Fill the earth and subdue it. That was the call to Adam and his wife Eve. Adam made a decision. Do I want God to be in control or do I want to be in control? And that was the temptation of the serpent within the garden. If you read Genesis 3, the temptation is, You will be like God, discerning both good and evil. You will be like God, discerning both good and evil. Why should you just have this instinctual pleasure of doing what God thinks is good? Right? Because that was mankind's state before the fall. Everything we instinctively wanted to do was necessarily good because it was perfectly reflective of God's nature. What Satan tempted Adam with was, how do you know that God's way is the best way? What if there's a better way? What if there's a different way? Wouldn't you want to discover that? And Adam said, yes. What that did to our nature is it altered us. Where again, not every instinct that you have is evil, but you do have a lot of instincts that are evil. And we as a culture and society can set up morality for ourselves. We get to decide what's good and evil, and we can create culture through it. That's what the kingdom of this world functions on. We don't want revelation. We want philosophy, wisdom, and the rights of man. We want to be free. That was the doctrine that passed down to you, to me, and to everyone else. This is why, for most of us, when we read in the Bible, something that the Bible says, you shall not do it, there is something in us that says, we'll see. There is something in us that rebels That doesn't want to be told what to do. That when we hear it, we're like, well, why? You know, it's so funny. We get so upset with our kids when they do that, right? Hey, do this, do that. Eat your vegetables. You know, clean your room. Why? And we get so mad. We're like, how could you think that I would be, you know, evil or malicious? Or how could you believe that I'm not telling you what's absolutely best for you? Just do it because I said so. And we get so mad with our kids. But then we do the exact same thing to God Thou shalt not X. Why? why? I don't understand. It's so interesting to me that, you know, as a pastor, especially dealing with the youth for a long time, I would show them various, especially sexual rules, by the way. That's the one our culture really struggles with today. And I would show them sexual rules. And they'd be like, why? Who's it hurting? Why? Isn't it enough that God just said so? Why is that not enough? Why is it not enough that God said not to do it? It's because we're children of Adam. We're children of Adam. It's not enough that God said so because we think we could do better. Yeah, God said it, but, you know, this was written through man, and man are fallen, and you know what? These are old guys. You know, They, they, they lived a long time ago, and they didn't know what we know today, so we could do better. That's the modern-day ideal, whereas Christians, we, don't, we shouldn't think that way. We should think, no, we're inherently fallen, and therefore we must be united to God's law, not what we think is best. We have to submit. So then he says, okay, so we're all united to Adam. He is the head of mankind naturally, just like you're born under a natural rule, right? You were born in a society, and therefore you're born to rules that you never agreed to, right? I never agreed to the laws of America, I was born under them, and I must live under them if I want to live within this country. In the same way, you were also born under another law, the law of Adam, the law of rebellion. That's what you were born into. Now, what the Bible teaches is that you can immigrate, quote-unquote, to another kingdom. Now, this immigration doesn't happen physically. You don't have to go anywhere But you do have to swear allegiance and loyalty to the king of that nation. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the king of heaven. That's what he says, the kingdom of heaven. He always talks about that. And a lot of Christians don't know what he's talking about. He's like, man, I'm from another country. Kingdom is this antiquated word, but it just basically means nation or sovereign entity or land. And that's what he's saying. I am the king of heaven. And I'm going to tell you guys what the culture of heaven is like. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. That's what all of his teachings are about. I am teaching you, right? This is Jesus. I am teaching you what the kingdom of heaven is like. And the kingdom of heaven submits to the king. That's what they do. They submit totally to the king. Now, the problem is, is that we have participated in the rebellion against heaven. Our kingdom was not set up peacefully. Our kingdom was set up At an enemy's sword, we took up arms against heaven. We said, no, we don't want the kingdom of heaven, or let's say our forefather did, Adam. And because of that, we are underneath the death penalty of that kingdom. God said, I could invade your little paltry planet, and I could enforce my rule with an iron sword. The problem is, is if God enforces his law on earth, no one would be left standing. No one will be left standing because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all participate in the rebellion. And Paul gives two evidences as to how we can know we're a part of this kingdom. Number one, all sin. Number one, all sin. If you've ever sinned, that's proof that you are a part of the kingdom of earth. You, are, you have assented to Adam's rebellion when you sin. Now, this is, again, shocking, because we're like, well, I don't sin as much as that guy, or my sin's not as bad as this person, so how could I be in the same category? Because in order to be a member of the kingdom of heaven, you know what? You can never sin. That's the qualifications. You can never sin if you want to be a member of the kingdom of heaven, and we all have. The second way that we can know that we're a part of this kingdom is all die. Nobody dies in the kingdom of heaven. It's an eternal kingdom. It's a kingdom filled with life. This is why, by the way, Jesus healed people. He's like, I'm preaching the kingdom of heaven. What's the kingdom of heaven all about? Life. It's all about life. And just a touch, just a single touch from the king of that nation would heal any wound, any malady within mankind. That's how powerful the life of that kingdom is. So all sin and all die, that's evidence that we are a part of the kingdom of this earth and not a part of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus comes, Jesus comes in the visage of man. He's born into our kingdom. And he lives a life that we should live in total obedience to the kingdom of heaven. He is the only human being who was loyal to God his entire life never sinned, did everything that a denizen of heaven should do. But instead of receiving the reward that he was owed at that point, which is access to heaven, Jesus denies what he's owed. And he instead takes what we're owed. He says, no, I'm not going to take my citizenship in heaven. I'm not going to take that right. I'm going to take the ultimate right of the citizens of earth. What's that? Death. I'm going to die. Though we never tasted sin, Jesus tasted death. And he rises again, and then through that resurrection, he unites the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of this earth. And he says, Anyone, anyone who wants to be in the kingdom of heaven, all they have to do is believe that I took your place on the cross, that I took your death, that you are under a death penalty. From the kingdom of heaven, and you need my forgiveness. You realize you're born sinful. You realize you're born broken. Receive the penalty of your actions through the cross. Believe in that, and you'll be forgiven. So anyone today who's like, "Well, that's not fair," you know, the doctrine of original sin—it's not fair, even though it's again the most clearly evident, of <laughs> thing that we could see throughout all of humanity that shows the truth of Scripture. It's so clear it's so obvious that we have to jump through weird philosophical hoops to try to get to the other side with our present philosophy intact. We have to make a mockery of logic to try to disprove something so obvious that we're broken. But you can complain about that. You can say it's not fair that I was born sin sinful. It's not fair that I was born in this kingdom. Well, now you have a choice. You do have a choice. You don't have to stay in this kingdom. And this option is available to everybody. And if you deny the free gift, that's the wording that Paul uses over and over again. If you deny the free gift, isn't that evidence in itself that you would have denied the free gift if you were in the state of Adam? Everyone's like, I wouldn't have done that. Really? Well, you have a chance to be in the kingdom of heaven right now. Right now. And if you say no to the free gift, that's proof absolute proof that you would have made the same exact decision as adam you can no longer look at god and say unfair it's perfectly fair the option is available to everybody you can live in the kingdom of heaven if you desire and what does that look like well there there are two things that begin to happen because like i said the evidence that you're in the kingdom of this earth are twofold you sin and you will die Well, once you are united to the kingdom of heaven, two things happen in you. Number one, your nature shifts. And we'll talk more about this in the next couple services. Your nature shifts. And now you will receive a brand new nature. So like I said, we all had this nature to begin with, the nature of being in the image of God. But it was fallen. It was twisted. It was warped. Sometimes it was on point. Sometimes it was very much off point now what's happened is you've inherited a perfected image of God. You have it. And that means that there is a part of you that wants to do the right thing. Always. This part of you never shuts up. It always wants to honor God. It always wants to submit to God. The problem is, is that your old nature that you received from your father, Adam, is still alive. He's dying but he's still alive, and he still has sway over you, and that part of you wants to rebel against God, and they're at war with each other. And Paul says, here's the hope. Paul says, one day that nature will die, and all you'll be left with is the nature that desires God. All that will be left when we die is the nature that wants to live under the rule of God and loves God. Verse 20 through 21. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the hope we have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much once again for this word. And I know that it's such a difficult doctrine to believe, Lord. It doesn't make us feel good to believe that we're born fallen. It doesn't make us feel good to believe that we're born a mess. Lord, but it is the only doctrine that makes sense as to the evil we see within ourselves and the evil we see within our society. And it is the only doctrine that brings any hope beyond ourselves. God, that we are connected not just to the fallenness of our father Adam, but we are now connected to the righteousness that exists in your son. So Lord, I pray that if there's anyone listening to this who has not made the decision to enter into your kingdom, to receive that free gift, Lord, that they would make that decision today. They would recognize the fallenness in their nature, that even the things that they think are immoral are the things that they practice. And even the things that they think are virtuous, they fail to live up to. So Lord, I pray that they would see that conviction. They would see that fallenness within themselves and they would look up and they would realize that there is a wonderful gift that is offered to them through your son, that they would accept it and receive it and find hope. And I pray for all those who have already made that decision that this would be a wonderful reminder to them that even though they have given their life to you, Lord, there still exists and remains a nature of them that rebels against you, God. So I pray that if they've become disheartened through their failure to sin, that they would remember that this is the state of humanity and this is the good fight that you have laid before us, and it is a fight that you have won, and it is a fight that will end. We thank you, Lord, for this hope, and in your name, amen.